Let us hear God's word. Psalm 110, verse 1, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we begin here today, um, we have many things around us that last a long time. We might think of this building lasting from a generation to a generation, or the house that we live in. For some of us, that house may have been around for several generations. Uh, Maybe we think of the trees outside here that can last for many, many years, Uh, even a nation that can last for centuries. Um, As we think of things that last a long time, this this can give us comfort, it can give us certainty, it can give us hope and strength. And with this in mind, we come here now to the topic of the priesthood here in Psalm 110. And we continue this all-important psalm. It is so significant because the New Testament has made reference to it so many times. So far, not even counting today, we have looked at 22 different passages. We have seen some other hints as well to Psalm 110. We have seen ties to Psalm 2 and Psalm 8 and Daniel 7. We have not taken time to flesh that out. But there are so many connections to this psalm, it is so significant. Thus, I haven't just rushed through it. We've done two sermons thus far, and we'll do one today, and we'll finish up, Lord willing, next week. So we've talked about the person of the Messiah, the position of the Messiah, and now today, the priesthood of the Messiah. Now last time, I intentionally overwhelmed you with all these different passages, And just try to impress on you the significance of it. But it is also significant, not because we have a list to follow. Here's what you need to do, or seven steps to effective Christian living, or something like that. It is significant because it is telling us what we need to believe about Jesus. He is both fully God and fully man. He lived a life of perfection He died an atoning death. We'll see some of that here today. He rose on the third day. He ascended into heaven. He sat down at God's right hand and now rules over all things. We have also seen how Psalm 110 found some fulfillment initially in Solomon. Likely the psalm was written just before David died. But as we come here now to verse 4, we wonder, does this apply to Solomon? It doesn't seem like it. Well, let's try to answer some of these questions. So let's look here at verse 4. Again, looking at uh, my translation here for you of this psalm. And verse 4 says, Yahweh has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the manner of Melchizedek. All right, now most of your translations are going to say something very similar. There's not really much debate in that way, and so you'll see how similar it is. But now, as you compare this to verse 1, verse 1 was the first utterance of the Lord. This now is the second one. In verse 1, you have the utterance, verses 2 and 3 expand on it. Here now, verse 4 is the second utterance, verses 5 to 7 expand on it. Okay, in verse 1, it's an utterance here now, Yahweh's swearing. In verse 1, he is speaking to David's master. Here now in verse 4, the added idea is he's not going to change his mind. And so note the connections, note the similarities, note the differences. But as we read this here, it sounds like God did change his mind about something. 
And now he's not going to change his mind. What does all that mean? Well, what we clearly see is whatever he's going to say is going to be permanent. He's not going to change his mind again. And so hence, you're a priest forever, he says. All right, well, let's start. We're going to look, not going to look at as many passages today, but we are going to look at several. Uh, let's turn here first to 2 Samuel chapter 7. <clears throat> Made reference to this passage last week, and of course many times over the years. But this is the passage where David wanted to build God a house. God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. Your son will build my house. And especially in verses 12 to 16, we have the promises God gave. And notice then verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. God had chosen Saul, right? And then he changed his mind. And he took away the promises from Saul because of Saul's disobedience. No descendants of Saul became kings. Instead, God chose David. And now God is promising to David that he's not going to change his mind. Changed his mind with Saul, but not with David. And even when David sinned and Solomon sinned and other descendants sinned, God did not change his mind. Now, they did go to, into exile for a while. And even after they came back, there's no king, really. <clears throat> but still, these promises to David are continuing. Well, you might say verses 1 to 3 in Psalm 110 are all about that idea. It is fulfilled ultimately in Christ, the son of David, though initially with Solomon and so forth. And God did not change his mind, and we see that all the way down then to Christ's coming. But now, we are transitioning to this idea of the priesthood. God changed his mind in some way about the priesthood. Now, of course, remember, try to understand this initially in the days that David wrote this. Okay. <laughs> they still had the Levitical priesthood. So how is this changing? What's happening? You know, try to uh, enter into their mindset to some degree. Well, as we try to do that here today, let's start then in this way. As we come back to verse 4 in Psalm 110, it says, You are a priest forever. Now, who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Well, <clears throat> in verses 1 to 3, it clearly referred to the master, right? An utterance of Yahweh to my master. And then all these used three times in verse one, three times in verse two, four times in verse three, 10 times he refers back to the master. Okay. And that makes sense, right? And everything fits together in that way. Fulfilled initially in Solomon, ultimately in Christ. But what about now? It would make sense that we would continue to see the you referring back to the master, right? And then we would assume that refers to Solomon initially. Ultimately, Jesus, of course, but what about initially? Well, if so, then the king is now also a priest. How can this then refer to Solomon? Let's turn here to 2 Chronicles chapter 26 a moment. <clears throat> This is one of the clearest passages in the Old Testament that teach us that the king is not to be a priest. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, I'll just summarize this here for you. <clears throat> but in verse 16, note what it says. When he, that is Uzziah the king, was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense <coughs> on the altar of incense. So Azariah and 80 priests go in and say, hey, you can't do that. They stopped him and, and so forth. And Uzziah gets all upset. And so God then sends him leprosy as a consequence of his sin. And he was that way until he died. Kings were not to be priests. They were not to do the work of priests. But they could work closely with priests and that's clearly what we see with David and with Solomon. David is the one who moved the ark. Okay. Let's, start, let's turn uh, to 1 Chronicles and uh, start in chapter 13. I'm just going to call your attention generally here. Again, encourage you to read these things um, either later today or sometime this week or something. But in chapter 13 of 1 Chronicles, 
you'll see that David wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And um, it doesn't work so well at first because they put it on a cart instead of carrying it on poles. So then in chapters 15 and 16, the ark is eventually brought to Jerusalem. Chapter 16 is incredibly important. There are many connections in the Psalter to this. We'll look at that. Uh, I believe it's the next time through the Psalms we'll see those things. And then if you go forward to chapter 22, here then David is, um, uh, is basically getting everything ready for the building of the temple. David is behind it all, right? He's getting all the supplies ready and such, and he had the, the Levites and their different works. And, and then David establishes the chief musicians and the, and the choirs and so forth, and then all the gatekeepers in chapter 26. And in chapters um, 28 and 29, David's giving instructions to Solomon, all these offerings are brought in, and so on and so forth, right? You get the point. David is behind all of this, working very closely with the priesthood. But he's not a priest. Let's turn over to chapter 2 of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 2. Solomon now does the same thing. We see him preparing to build the temple, chapter 2. And then the actual description of its building in chapters 3 and 4. The ark is brought in chapter 5. His speech and dedication in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, hear these words, beginning in verse 4. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So he and the king, uh, sorry, so the king and all the people dedicated the house of the Lord. Did Solomon actually offer the sacrifices? That's what it says. I mean, they would have been there for days offering this many sacrifices, right? If he actually did the killing and pouring out the blood and all that sort of thing. Well, note verse 6. <clears throat> and the priest attended to their services. So the priests are the ones who are actually doing the sacrificing. But do you see how closely connected Solomon is here to the work of the priesthood? He's not doing the sacrificing, but he's right there beside them. You'll see more there uh, in, in uh, verses 6 and 7, some of the same kinds of ideas. All right, so <clears throat> does Psalm 110 verse 4 refer to Solomon? Well, if so, it's in this way. But obviously, like any typology, you're looking for something greater. So if we make a connection with Solomon here, we are even more so than verses 1 to 3, looking for something greater now here in verse 4. But because of this distinction between king and priest, there are people who have said over the years and even today, this did not refer to Solomon in any way, even from the beginning. And so some say that it refers to Christ only. David is just being prophetic. There is no application during his day. Okay. Um, but others say, well, wait a second, <clears throat> maybe we should see the you as referring to somebody else. Not to Solomon, like in verses 1 to 3, but now actually to a different person. So let's turn then to 1 Kings chapter 1. I keep returning to this passage. Again, encourage you to read the whole of it. This is where Adonijah tries to become king. David's about to die, right? And uh, notice in verse 7, here in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 7, he conferred with Joab the son of Zeruiah and Abiathar the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. So David's uh, principal leader of the army and the chief priest, the high priest, Abiathar, who had been with David for well over 40 years now, remember he joined with David when David was running from Saul, here now basically he turns against David. He goes without Adonijah, even though David had said, at least in some ways, that it was going to be Solomon. And then, of course, everything is publicly said to be Solomon as the rest of the chapter goes. If you look at verse 8 here, it says about Zadok the priest and these other people who are with David. All right, now you remember in chapter 2, as I looked at last week, 
In verses 5 and following, David's about to die, and he says, Solomon, you need to put these people under your feet. Okay? And so you'll see Joab especially uh, in these, uh, these uh, first words because of uh, his sin. And then in verse 8, Shimei is also mentioned. In verses 13 and following, here Adonijah still is trying to claim the throne, and Solomon ends up putting him to death too, executing him for that uh, insurrection, basically. If you look at verse 26 here in chapter 2, And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your own fields, for you are deserving of death. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. So Abiathar is removed as high priest. Okay. Now in verses 28 and following, uh, we see Joab is actually put to death. Okay. And then in verses 36 and following, Shimei is actually executed. Okay. And so Solomon is putting them under his feet, right, as we talked about last time. But note then verse 35, the end of the verse, it says, the king, right, Solomon, put Zadok the priest in the place of Abiathar. Now, how does this fit together? Well, <clears throat> Eli, of course, was a descendant of Aaron. But through one of Aaron's sons, remember Aaron had four sons, Nadab and Abihu, remember they were zapped because they offered strange fire. God killed them. Then there was Ithamar and Eleazar. Eli was a descendant of Ithamar. Okay. And God said to Eli in the beginning of 1 Samuel that his line would end because of his sin, the sin of his sons, and so forth, right? And that happened. Eli died, his sons died. Okay. Then remember all the, the priests in Nob were killed there by Saul and Doeg the Edomite, and certainly that includes some of Eli's line. Uh, but Abiathar survived. And he went to David, and now here Solomon is taking Abiathar and demoting him, removing him from his office, and he replaces him with Zadok. Well, who's Zadok? Well, Zadok is a descendant of Aaron through Eleazar, the other line of Aaron. Now, let's look at two passages here briefly. Let's turn to First Chronicles, First Chronicles chapter 6. First Chronicles chapter 6. And note verse 50. Okay. Obviously, these aren't all the sons of Aaron, but note it says. Now, these are the sons of Aaron. Eleazar his son, Phinehas his son, Abishua his son, Buki his son, Uzi his son, Zerahiah his son, Mariah his son, Amariah his son, Ahitub his son, Zadok his son, and Ahimaaz his son. Here's the line of Zadok. Now let's turn back to Numbers, chapter 25. Okay, in Numbers 25, you remember this is the story of Israel joining with the women of Moab. And God was upset understandably so, and 24,000 people were put to death because of their sin. But do you remember Phineas took his javelin and drove it through a man and a woman as they were sinning, and it stopped the plague? Now, if you look at verses 10 and following, notice what God says to him. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Now, that's some significant words there, isn't it? Okay. We know that Eleazar was high priest after Aaron died. 
We know that Phineas was. But at some point between Phineas and Sadoc, the line of Eleazar ceased being high priest and the line of Ithamar started being high priest. We don't know when that happened or for how long. But let's just say Ithamar was high priest at his line for 200 years or something. In the days of Solomon, there is a changing that is taking place, a changing of mind from the high priest Abiathar in the line of Ithamar to now back to the line of Eleazar through Zadok, fulfilling God's word to Phineas. It seems like if we're going to find an initial point of application of Psalm 110 in the days of David and Solomon, it's this here. I'm not sure it points us to Solomon in this case. I would agree with those who say if there's an initial application, it's here with Zadok. And it's in this way. But you say, well, wait a second here. It says in the manner of Melchizedek. Notice it does not say in the line of Melchizedek, though. It's in the manner of Melchizedek. So even someone in the line of Aaron could be according to the manner of Melchizedek. Let me explain how that works. Okay. Think of it in this way. Not even Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek. Okay. Jesus is not in the line of Aaron either. But he is according to the way or manner of Aaron and here now in the way or manner of Melchizedek. The word here, as I've translated as manner, can be translated as way, can be translated as order or a kind of sequence. It can be translated as kind or type even. So this priest in Psalm 110 verse 4 will be after the way of Melchizedek, after his manner, after his kind, you could say. Not physical descent, but someone who is like Melchizedek. Well, Zadok could be like Melchizedek initially, certainly not ultimately, but it's possible. And that's what some people argue. We still have to ask the question, what did the people in David's day and Solomon's day, what did they think? How did they understand this? And I think there probably was some thought that this had some initial fulfillment, and Zadok, I think, makes most sense. But, of course, that's not the final point, as we'll look at here in a moment. All right, now, a couple more things here in the Old Testament, and then we'll shift. Melchizedek is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament, here in Psalm 110, verse 4, and then in Genesis 14. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 14, and here's where, of course, he is first mentioned. <clears throat> All right, Abraham went and rescued Lot from the kings, and he's coming back. And note just three verses is all we have here of Melchizedek, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. So notice, what is the manner of Melchizedek? He is a priest and a king. That's the first idea. And he blessed him and said, now who's blessing whom here? Well, note the next line. Blessed be Abram of God most high. So Melchizedek is blessing Abram. Possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. Who's giving whom a tenth? Well, the assumption is if Melchizedek is blessing, he's greater than Abram. So it makes sense that Abram would give a tithe to the greater, right? That's the assumption. <clears throat> but this is all we have in the Old Testament. And God, the Holy Spirit, led David to make this statement, this oath here, quoting God in regard to this master, this priest king, and so on and so forth. I can imagine, and I'm certainly not alone, that when people heard this from David, they're like, <clears throat> if we're right, David wrote it at the end of his life, they might, they might be thinking, um, David, you, you know, are you like Joe Biden? Are you not quite all there? You know, What does this mean? Now, remember this. This is Psalm 110, 
It's found in book five of the Psalter. Book five is, is this focus on after the exile. In other words, this psalm is here. It's not in books one or two. If this psalm were in book two, then it would make sense that, yeah, well, you know, this, this must find fulfillment in Solomon. Because book two ends with Solomon. But it's here in book five. And it's placed here because by this time, roughly 500 years after David wrote it, they, they now are beginning to see this is pointing to something far greater. They probably had that idea to some degree, but now they're seeing it much more clearly after the exile. So let's turn then to Zechariah and chapter 4. <clears throat> you recall that after the exile, Zerubbabel is kind of a king, more like a governor. Joshua was the high priest. Nehemiah was also a governor, and there are others leading. But the governor and the priest worked together. And God sent Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people to build the temple and to build the wall and so forth, right? Now, note what we see here in Zechariah chapter 4. <clears throat> now, this is a bit obscure, but, but think about it carefully. God here gives this vision of the lampstand and the olive trees. And first of all, the point is to encourage Zerubbabel that he's going to finish building the temple. Okay. Note, the king is building God's house, kind of like Solomon did. Then look at verse 11. And I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees, uh, two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? And he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Now, who was anointed in the Old Testament? The king was and the priest was. So the two anointed ones here, most likely, are referring to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. Do you see how the priest and the king are put together? even though Zerubbabel's not really on the throne. Well, if you think that's not overly clear, then turn to chapter 6. Now here is a word that comes to Zechariah, and he's to speak it to Joshua, the high priest. Verse 12. And speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, right, from these olive trees, right? From his place he shall branch out. He shall build the temple of the Lord. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and he shall sit and rule on his throne. He shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. In other words, priest and king. No longer separated, but put together. So do you see how the ideas of the priest and king coming together are not just found in Psalm 110? but here in Zechariah. So after the exile, now that there's really no king on the throne, they're looking for the Messiah in a way they hadn't before that would put these offices together, the office of priest and king. Okay. So maybe it applied to Solomon, maybe it applied to Zadok, but ultimately it's applying to the Messiah who is going to come. All right, very briefly, here is some of how it all fits together in the Old Testament. But thankfully, we have a very clear teaching in the New Testament about what all this means and why it's important to us. So let's turn here to Hebrews and chapter 5. <clears throat> Melchizedek is mentioned twice in the Old Testament, eight times here in the New Testament, and all of them are here in Hebrews chapters 5 through 7. So let's start our reading here in chapter 5, verse 1. 
For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself was also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is re uh, required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes his honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, first of all, do you see that he's giving a brief description of what the priest does? Okay. And that he had to be appointed. He can't just say, hey, I'm going to be the priest. God appointed Aaron. Now, note how he continues then. Verse 5. So also, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2, verse 7. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 2, verse 7 is clearly talking about the king. Psalm 110, verse 4, we're talking about the priest. You see how they're put together. Verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his gladly fear, though he was a son, Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. All right, again, I could spend forever talking about all this stuff. There's so much here. But do you see the point? Jesus is the son, the son of David, right? Son of David, who learned obedience. He was a human who learned obedience. He per was perfect. He never sinned. And because he never sinned, he became the author of eternal salvation. He's in the order of Melchizedek as king and as priest. Now, notice what he says here. <clears throat> this is hard to explain. And maybe you're thinking that right now. But we have to understand this. This is so important. And part of the reason why maybe you're not following this is you become dull of hearing. <laughs> and that's what the author goes on to talk about next. The rest of chapter 5 into chapter 6, he talks about those who are dull of hearing. The book of Hebrews is written to Israelites who had accepted Jesus. But because of persecution, we're going back to Judaism because it was safer. And he's basically saying, you can't do that. Christ is far superior to the stuff of the Old Testament. You can't go back. And so that's basically what he's saying. You're dull of hearing because you're afraid, basically. So picking up in verse 13 now in chapter 6, he says, From when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, right, God and the oath now, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Now, you might be wondering, why does he go back to Abraham? Well, remember the connection of Abraham and Melchizedek. Okay. And, and, and he is saying here, look, God swore an oath to Abraham, saying all these promises to Abraham, God's not going to change his mind. He's going to give all these things to Abraham. God also swore an oath to this priest. He's not going to change his mind. There's that connection, too, of the oath. So notice then what he says, verse 19. This hope we have is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So this oath, Psalm 110, verse 4, Melchizedek, all of this is going together. Jesus didn't just say, hey, I'm going to be priest. This sounds like a great idea. Now God swore that he would right here. Psalm 110, verse 4. 
Even if it did refer to Solomon or Zadok initially, it ultimately is referring to Christ. So then chapter 7, he brings it all together. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth of the part, a tenth part of all, right? So now we know for sure what the Hebrew said there. First being translated king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. And also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Salem is the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. Remember, Solomon means peace, shalom. And then verse 3, here's the, the key idea. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. <clears throat> I would agree with those who would say that um, uh, Melchizedek was just a regular king. He is not the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay? He was made like the Son of God. So how does, how does the author get to this idea of eternality for Melchizedek? Well, we just read from Genesis 14, and it says nothing about where Melchizedek came from. It says nothing about where he went. Right? It just seems like he's always been there. It seems eternal. It wasn't really, but it seemed that way. But remember, that's what typology does. It takes something that is sort of kind of true, and then you see a much greater fulfillment Later, here in Jesus. And that's what's going on. Melchizedek seemed like he lived forever because we only have three verses, but Jesus actually does live forever. Okay. So verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch David, or sorry, Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. <clears throat> but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the, the better. Right? So Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Here, multiple men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. <clears throat> I know that is rather confusing, but the main point simply is Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. So if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. He's greater than Abraham too, right? And he's even greater than Melchizedek because he actually does live forever. Melchizedek only seemed to live forever. Do you see his logic here? Why would you go back to Aaron? Why would you go back to the, the old covenant? Christ is far better than any of these things. Greater than Abraham. Okay. <clears throat> So here's, here's how he's going with this. All right, let's keep going then. And now in verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were th through the Levitical, sorry, Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? All right, why do we need a new priesthood if Aaron did the job? Right. Let's go back to Zadok a moment and Eleazar. From Eleazar to Christ, you're talking roughly 1,400 years. Now, where was that interlude with Ithamar? But that lasted a long time. But it really wasn't forever, and it certainly was not complete. It was incomplete. Okay. The physical line of Aaron had a beginning and an end, and it was incomplete. He's going to go on and explain how here in just a moment. Okay. <clears throat> so let's look <clears throat> at the next verse. Verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, right? God changed his mind here. Of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe 
from which no man has officiated at the altar. God's law initially was, right, a son of Levi, son of Aaron. Now he's changed his mind. He's changed his law. Not just from the line of Ithamar to the line of Eleazar with Zadok, but now from Aaron to a different tribe altogether. So he says, verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest, who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. You see why this is so important? This isn't just head games. This isn't just, you know, some academic exercise. The reason why this is important is because Aaron didn't forgive us of any of our sins. But Jesus did. It is a better hope. The law made nothing perfect, but Jesus does. Right? Only Aaron and the high priest could draw near to God once a year. But now we can draw near to God. We'll see that in chapter 10. Well, let's keep going. Verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Now, God said Aaron was supposed to be priest, right, and his descendants. But you don't actually see a full oath. You do have that word to Phineas. Okay? <clears throat> but it's not quite the same. And, and God changed his mind anyway because of their sin. But here in this way, <clears throat> there is a new oath. And the oath is to Christ, ultimately. And that oath now is not going to change because Christ didn't fail. There's no reason to change it now. It's a better covenant. So verse 23 Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. That's the order of Melchizedek. The line of Aaron was not in that order because the line of Aaron kept dying every generation. But ultimately, it's pointing us here to Christ, who does live forever. We don't need another priest. That's why it's better. Don't go back to Judaism, right? Stay here as Christians, even if you're persecuted. So verse 25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, you see the benefit of this. The fact that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek means he's praying for us right now. He's interceding for us now. Verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law, Psalm 110, verse 4, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Aaron only looked perfect, right? All those garments made him look perfect, but he wasn't. Jesus didn't look so nice. He just had everyday clothes, but he was perfect in every way. These men, these priests, they offered sacrifices every day, Blood every day was shed for their sin and for the sin of the people. But Christ, he didn't need to offer sin, uh, blood for his sin, but he offered blood for our sin. And he didn't offer the blood of another, he offered his own blood. Okay. 
do you see the benefits here of Christ being better than Aaron? Do you see here how Psalm 110, verse 4, is pointing us to Christ? And he is the one, ultimately, who is our king and our priest. Okay? Jesus did not descend from Aaron because he's greater than Aaron. Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, as we see here. And so this is far better. And this is why any one of us are saved. Now, literally, I could spend months talking about these things, years even. But do you see the point? In Psalm 110, verse 1, David, or sorry, Jesus is David's son. Okay? A human, but without sin. But Jesus also is David's Lord. He is David's master. He is God. Jesus is king, sitting at God's right hand, ruling over all things. Verses 1 to 3. But Jesus also is priest, high priest, like Aaron, but greater than Aaron. Because he is actually perfect. He actually does live forever because he rose from the dead. He actually offers a perfect sacrifice, not through the blood of another, but his own. And he is not separated from the king. Jesus is legitimate because God swore an oath. And it's, all of this is fitting together here in this way. Jesus is our king. He is our priest. He paid for our sin with his own blood. Our sins are actually forgiven. We are now declared to be righteous. He rose from the dead, so he is a priest forever. And so we then can be forever with God in heaven. Jesus conquered as king, conquering sin and death and Satan. He ascends to God's right hand and rules on high forever. And so as king and priest, as conqueror and minister, as ruler and savior, this Messiah is far greater than any other, whether Aaron or Moses or Joshua or the angels. That's the point of Hebrews. Christ is greater than everything else. God fulfilled his oath to David by sending Christ. God fulfilled his oath here by sending Christ to be the priest king forever. Now, as I have said since I started this, the goal here is not to say, okay, well, then how then should I live? What are the practical points of application? That's not the point. <clears throat> the point here is we must believe this about Jesus. We must accept this about Jesus. We must understand these things. If you do not accept Jesus' bloody sacrifice, and for roughly 200 years, many people, professing Christians have said they do not accept a bloody sacrifice. If you don't, you're not a Christian. It's that simple. There are many people who do not accept the actual resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Christ. Again, for the last 200 years especially, there have been many in the church who've said that. But you can't be a Christian unless you believe it. Because how could Christ be forever if he didn't rise from the dead? We must believe these things because Jesus' priesthood has no end. There is full atonement. There is one who prays for us. Our sins are fully and completely forgiven. We have eternal life because of who Jesus is and therefore what he has done. And so there are many points of practical application. But our primary point here is we must believe this about Jesus. Now, have I answered all your questions? Probably not. Because even as the author of the Hebrews says, this is hard to understand. But it's not that hard. Christ has brought together in himself all these promises. And so we actually have forgiveness of sins. 
We actually have salvation in him. And so if you trust in Jesus, you can enjoy this. If you do not, or if you've made Christ into some other Christ, then there is no salvation for your sins. This is why it's so important. And so here are a few words today on these things. Lord willing, next time we'll look at verses 5 to 7. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word. And, and, and sometimes things are so plain as we read them and everybody can understand. But sometimes they are so involved and so um, interconnected from one passage to another like this, that it can be hard for us, can be rather overwhelming for us. But we are thankful, Lord, that your truth holds together, that your word is one. We are thankful, Lord, that you have given so many things to prepare us for the coming of Christ, to help us to understand who he is and what he would do. And as we've been focusing here on David and Solomon and Melchizedek and even Zadok and so forth, May it all help us to see Christ more clearly, who he is and what he has done. May it help us to see better you, your promises, your grace to us, the salvation that has been accomplished through your son. We thank you again, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the written word. We thank you for the living word, our Lord Jesus And we are thankful, Lord, that uh, he has come, fulfilling these promises that we might have salvation forever because he lives forever as our priest king. So, Lord, we, again, pray that you would have our minds think clearly, that it may spur faith in us and, therefore, obedience to. And so we pray all these things, then, in Jesus' name. Amen.